You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome back to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Super fans will note that for the past few weeks, we've brought you some of our killer in-depth panels and discussions on cyber, covering topics like women in cyber, AI, privacy, and cybersecurity. Last week's episode also covered a major milestone, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And that comes on the heels of our complete withdrawal from Afghanistan. Thursday marked the first commercial flight from a Kabul airport that is now under Taliban control. But it's been a while since we've covered the news and boy, has there been a lot of it in national security. To help me with a legal analysis, we have our dear friend of the cast and chair of the standing committee, Professor Bill Banks. Thanks for coming back, Bill. It's always good to be with you, Yvette, and I'm glad to be back on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. So let's just jump in and stick with Afghanistan for a moment. One of the arguments that we've heard against leaving was based on concerns that we're leaving a power vacuum that invites terrorist activity. The Biden administration has said that it will be conducting over-the-horizon counterterrorism. What does that mean? What are the legal issues that go along with it? That's a great topic. It's deep and complicated. And like so much else right now, having withdrawn from Afghanistan, uh, we're not sure what's going to happen. The capability that the Biden administration has been discussing lately is the idea that we can keep, we, the United States, can keep our eyes fixed on direct threats to the United States in that region and act quickly and decisively if we need to. So We monitor groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS Khorasan without having boots on the ground. We can develop targets using really sophisticated intelligence operations, technology, and then we can launch strikes as needed from regional locations. It's a relatively simple idea, and of course, in some ways, it's been going on for a number of years. But I think as CENTCOM has acknowledged in candid moments, even to the media, it's really difficult to pull it off. A lot of things have to go very much in our favor. Of course, the few days right at the peak period of withdrawal, we had a demonstrated example of such a strike when we hit an ISIS-K planner and facilitator using a UAV while the United States was still withdrawing from the uh, Kabul airport. And then there was, of course, a few days later, another strike in Kabul that appears to have been a tragic mistake with loss of life to civilians, including several children. The legal picture at international law is one that's been sketched out over a period of years. The best way to pull off over-the-horizon counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan is to have cooperative diplomatic relations with the host state. That would be the Taliban government, of course. Indeed, the the Doha agreement that the United States under the Trump administration entered into in 2020 expects the Taliban to promise not to allow any of its members or groups, including al-Qaeda, to use Afghan soil to threaten the security of the United States. And indeed, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, acknowledged that it's possible that the U.S. would work with the Taliban to target ISIS-K in the region. So the number one option legally would be to take the, essentially take the law off the table by having Afghanistan, the Taliban government of Afghanistan, consent 
to uh, the United States' use of force against the terrorist group in Afghanistan. That's ideal. It's perhaps not as likely. And of course, with respect to ISIS-K, we've got one set of issues, but other groups inside Afghanistan, particularly al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda spinoff groups, it's even less likely that the Taliban would consent to the United States tracking and then using force against the target there. A second option, and perhaps one that's more practically possible under these circumstances, is to apply a test in international law that's come to be known as the unwilling and unable test. If the United States wants to undertake over-the-horizon strikes against al-Qaeda or ISIS-K in Afghanistan and the Taliban uh, doesn't give its consent, we would invoke that doctrine in a way similar to the way the doctrine was invoked in airstrikes against ISIS in Syria in recent years. The doctrine essentially says that use of force and self-defense against a non-state actor in the territory of a third state without the consent of that state is lawful under Article 51 of the UN Charter, but to assert the unable or unwilling justification for the use of force in another state, the, the victim or responding state, that would be us, must have suffered an armed attack by a non-state actor. And that state has to demonstrate that it's unwilling or unable to address the threat posed by the non-state actor. In this case, we would say that the Taliban government is unable or unwilling to address the threat by, say, al-Qaeda or ISIS-K in its territory. So if that predicate can be met, then the United States has some legal authority. So I wonder if you would argue that the September 11th attack, since it was 20 years ago, is too attenuated to invoke Article 51. And the fact that the Taliban government, while there was a version of it in Afghanistan during the September 11th attacks in 2001, if you could really say that it's the same one, right? So could we meet all of the elements that are required by Article 51? I think, you know, Yvette, that's a good question. And I think the answer is that the new Taliban government sort of wipes the slate clean and, and we start over. So that if there are continuing attacks against the United States personnel or interest inside Afghanistan lodged by ISIS-K or by al-Qaeda or its spinoffs, then I think we develop a new course of continuing terrorist activity that gives rise to the authority to comply with Article 51 in that way. The final way you could make international law work in this circumstance, of course, is to obtain a Security Council authorization, a Chapter 7 authorization that would uh, provide direct authority to take military action to maintain and restore international peace and security under Article 42 of Chapter 7. That's highly unlikely to occur, of course, as long as Russia and China sit on the Security Council. So it's option one, host state consent, and that's in the best of all possible worlds. Option two, unable or unwilling, depending on the circumstances. Got it. And it also sounds like in between the lines is that we may have to wait for a new attack on an American interest, whether it's on our soil or it's one of our extraterritorial interests before we could even move forward on that second that's option. Right. And that's, of course, particularly going to be the case as continuing efforts at evacuation occur. 
So let's shift to domestic law. Now that we've completed our military withdrawal, where does that leave our authorization for the use of military force or AUMF? Could President Biden or a future president rely on that law to return troops to the field? Or are we going to have the continuation of the perennial debate that we had over 20 years of we need a new AUMF? We do need a new AUMF, and we're probably not going to get one anytime soon. And arguably, uh, the AUMF continues to have some vitality because of the presence of al-Qaeda and affiliated groups. For a long time, as you know, in the years since 9-11, the United States has relied on the the morphing of al-Qaeda and the Taliban into various splinter groups, some different names, different constituencies, to provide authorization for uh, U.S. domestic authority to continue to combat terrorists in that region of the world, as well as in East and North Africa and a few other places. So I think we'll continue there. It's somewhat controversial because uh, arguably Congress has an authorized conflict now after the withdrawal of Afghanistan, but that authorization from 2001 probably retained some vitality. I'd also say on behalf of the commander in chief, that there may be constitutional authority here, uh, particularly if there are attacks against the U.S. interests remaining in Afghanistan or those who are attempting to assist foreign nationals in evacuations from there. The president has a constitutional authority to rescue and protect Americans and their allies abroad, as well as to carry out defensive military action. So I think between Constitution and the admittedly stale AUMF, there's probably a fair amount of domestic authority that remains. Right until we run up against the War Powers Act, which every president has ignored. (laughs) Every every president since President Nixon has disputed its constitutionality and refused to abide by all its terms. It's sort of a dead letter. Got it. And while the military part of the war in Afghanistan is over, at least for now, the justice part drags on. The trial of the alleged mastermind of the attack, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, is resuming the pre-trial phase at Guantanamo Bay, nearly a decade after the arraignment and obviously 20 years after the attack. It's kind of stunning to think that there are law students out there, I imagine listening to our podcast, who weren't born when the law kick, when the war kicked off. So can you just give us the summaries on this case, why it's taken so long and what we can expect from the commission in the future? It's frustrating, I think, to, to all observers, uh, probably very frustrating to the participants as well. I understand that now the colonel who's been named as uh, judge of the military commission is the fourth judge to be named to preside over this trial. He announced, I think, in pre-trial proceedings yesterday, that trial would not be ready to commence for at least another year. So this time in 2022, a stunning series of delays. The delays, of course, are caused by a variety of factors. For a long time, there was foment inside the executive branch and between the executive branch and Congress over where those individuals might be tried. Might they be brought to the United States to stand trial in New York City, for example, or in Washington or in Eastern District of Virginia and in secure facilities? The administration went pretty far down that path 
early in the Obama administration to see that that, that alternative could, could be accomplished. And meantime, there was a lot of delay in those early years because it was recognized early on that some of those uh, 9-11 defendants, there are five, had been subjected to torture at Guantanamo or at other facilities maintained by the U.S., so-called ghost or black sites. In 2012, Congress enacted a provision in the, in the Defense Authorization Act, which has been reenacted every year since 2012, forbidding the movement of any of those detainees to the United States for any purpose, to stand trial or for anything else, and at the same time forbids the expenditure of any uh, appropriated funds toward that end. So they're in Gitmo, they appear to be stuck in Gitmo. And then finally, there's a tremendous amount of, of give and take over the issue of capital punishment. On the possibility that the penalty phase of a trial could be negotiated to forego the death penalty, an, an option that our, our colleague Harvey Rishikoff explored when he was the convening authority of the military commissions a few years ago, that remains probably one of the viable alternatives for trying to come to some resolution to allow uh, a somewhat simpler trial to get started sooner rather than later. It's the penalty phase that is the most controversial part of the trial and where the evidence of torture might be most damning to the United States efforts to obtain that penalty. So I think we're, we're looking at more than a year before a proceeding could begin, and then an endless series of delays in carrying out the proceeding itself. We'd be far better off if the parties could come to some kind of a, an agreed resolution. Yep, so the legal gambit of placing the terror suspects at Guantanamo Bay is continuing to pay dividends. It is, I'm afraid. So let's turn our attention to stateside threats. This Saturday, September 18th, there will be a Justice for J6 rally in D.C. This rally positions the rioters who attacked the Capitol during the certification of the Electoral College votes in favor of then-President-elect Biden as political prisoners. D.C. Metropolitan Police Department is working overtime to prepare. They've canceled all leaves to ensure adequate manning is available to prevent violence. They've also erected those barriers that were put in place uh, after the January 6th attack. And so there's a fair amount of nervousness in the D.C. area where I live. However, the deeper meaning behind January 6th, which is the attempt to subvert a peaceful transfer of power from one president to another, looms large. So let's talk about this from a legal perspective. Clearly, the protesters have a First Amendment right. But when does that cross into unprotected territory? And does that include challenges to the legitimacy of the sitting government? I think that, you know, the sort of black letter law here, if you will, it is pretty straightforward. And the First Amendment is going to protect the, the right of these protesters to express themselves, even if the expression includes calling into question the legitimacy of the government. That's an idea. It, it may be an abhorrent idea to, to you and me and, and our listeners, but it's an idea and it's, it merits First Amendment protection. So the line, if you will, between protective expression and criminally culpable action is the same line that uh, was crossed so violently on January 6th. It's the line that the, that the Supreme Court announced in a case called Brandenburg, a Ku Klux Klan case that's now 50 years old, 
where to enable protection of what would have otherwise been protected speech, those actors have to be engaged in imminent incitement of lawless action, imminent incitement. So certainly some of the January 6th uh, plotters uh, crossed that line and are now being criminally charged with that conduct. But uh, I hope we don't get to that uh, on the protest this weekend. Simply speaking and, and carrying placards or marching is protected First Amendment activity. So where is the line? So is it once we've taken up arms, where do we get to sedition? Well, it's imminent incitement. So, you know, the, in dozens of instances since the, the Brandenburg case in the 1960s, there have been factually nuanced analyses that had to be undertaken to decide when expression crossed the line into action. Imminent incitement to violence. Let's go take down the White House now. Let's go break down the barriers outside the Capitol now with movement inspired, that's crossed the line. But if the speaker says instead, I think that the government that we've just elected is an illegitimate government, and I think that we should remove them from power at the earliest opportunity, that's protected. Well, thank you, Professor Banks. Classic, it depends answer. It's been a minute since we've had one of those on the cast, so we we welcome it, and I'm sure our last Law student audience also does. I can't help it. I'm a professor. (laughs) Um, Well, we'll continue to watch the January 6th prosecutions when their way through the system. We heard about the first sentences last month. This will be a long process. And of course, the cast will be tuned in to those developments. But in that same thread, domestic terrorism isn't the only threat that we're worried about right now. COVID continues to dominate the news, including in national security circles. Since the FDA fully approved the Pfizer vaccine in late August, President Biden has shifted the approach to COVID from relying on voluntary vaccination to mandates, including for the active duty military, employers with more than 100 employees, um, and other ways to exert federal power that have not heretofore been exercised. There's a lot of commentary about whether this is legal, uh, especially in the Twitterverse. Not everybody on Twitter is a lawyer, spoiler alert. Um, So can you tell us what the facts are about the law? What does the Constitution and what does the case law say about the vaccine mandates? Those are really interesting questions. And it's true that President Biden has taken a much more uh, bold and you might even say aggressive stance against those who are unwilling to protect themselves and the rest of us against COVID, both with regard to vaccines and then masking mandates and the like. The vaccine situation legally is actually fairly straightforward. The right of the government to impose vaccines on individuals has been established since at least 1904 in the Supreme Court decision that upheld a Massachusetts law that required all adults to be vaccinated against smallpox. More recent cases have called into question about the authority of the federal government to undertake similar measures, but there are strong authorities. The president here, following through, if he does, on his, uh, on his plan to require a vaccine for all firms that employ 100 or more persons, is not acting on the basis of his constitutional authority. He's acting pursuant to a statute that Congress enacted more than 50 years ago the Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA. And OSHA 
has a mechanism in it that allows for what are called emergency temporary standards. And those emergency temporary standards may be promulgated by OSHA, reviewed by a White House regulatory office, and then put into place by the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Agency, which would then begin enforcement actions. That's the plan for the, the 100 person and above private sector mandate as we speak. And, and of course, as to healthcare uh, providers and the military and others where the employees are either federal employees or they're uh, working for an entity which receives substantial federal financial support, there they're effectively the president's people and the president can expect his employees to, uh, to do what he asks them to do, that is to receive a vaccine. The most controversial one is the 100 plus private sector uh, employers. There's a lot of pushback, but I think on the basis of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, there's a very good chance that they can make good on it. One of the problems with uh, this mechanism is that it's gonna take several weeks uh, for these uh, emergency temporary standards to be promulgated, then to be reviewed by the White House, and then to be put into place for enforcement. And then, ironically, uh, there are woefully too few enforcers to actually go through private industry from one sector to another to try to assess who the violators are and to begin to uh, impose fines that would provide an additional incentive for the remainder to uh, get into line and receive the vaccine. So it's an ambitious plan. I think the legal picture favors the administration here, but uh, the practical implementation steps are going to be really complicated. Yeah, there was a lot of storm and drang around the fact that particular employment sectors like meatpacking industry, um, obviously like teachers, places where you can't have effective social distancing uh, measures, uh, where COVID was just running through these job sites. And people were complaining that OSHA had not uh, made any kind of significant fines, even when, especially in the meatpacking industry, you had worker deaths. So is this really a paper tiger? It might be. You know, the, the facts, of course, are that the Delta variant is especially transmissible. And in a close, close environments, working place, you say meatpacking plants, uh, uh, transmission could catch on like, like wildfire. So that the predicate, the, the, the public health justifications for government action here are especially persuasive, compelling even. And I think then that makes the, the plan all the more likely to be upheld when it's challenged. And to that point, are there other hooks besides OSHA? Could President Biden, for example, pin people's Medicare payments or Medicaid or uh, other types of federal payments on demonstrating proof of vaccination? He could. You know, the, the authority of the, of the president to condition the, the receipt or spending of federal dollars on conditions is very uh, widely uh, supported in, in constitutional law. And I think he would be on very strong ground here. In some respects, it's probably a device that's easier to implement than a than an inspection program through OSHA. The steps there are going to be pretty complicated and unwieldy. 
on the other hand, the you know expectation of having Medicare or Medicaid, Social Security is one that a lot of millions of Americans depend on regularly every month or whatever the cycle is without interference. Well, we shall see. We'll see how effective um, the current the president's current COVID plan is and whether or not it expands in the coming weeks and months as we battle the Delta and Mu variants. Thanks a lot, Professor Banks, for joining us. Don't go to Twitter for your law unless, of course, you're going to at ABA NATSEC, where you can uh, send us a tweet. You can also send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. We really hope to hear from you, dear listener. Don't forget that the lawyers hosting and guesting on this podcast are here in their individual capacities and not on behalf of any agency, company, or other institution. We'll see you back here next week, and we'll continue to delve into exciting and interesting topics in national security law. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 